Good morning. Welcome to this service of Stapleford Baptist Church. We are very pleased that you can join us online, even though we can't see you. Hope that you'll get in touch with us uh, one way or another, and uh, it'd be good if you were able to join us uh, this afternoon at our communion service. Look forward to seeing you there uh, on Zoom. If you haven't got the details, then uh, ring up someone who will know or look at our website or maybe you've received an email with that information already. Today we start a new series in our uh, sermons. We're going to be looking at the book of Habakkuk uh, every other week for the next few weeks, God willing. So let's pray that God will be with us as we meet this morning. Father, we really thank you so much that we can come and join together in this way. We pray that as we meet, you would meet with us. Pray that our singing, our praying, our listening to your word, both uh, from the scriptures and also in the sermon, would be a blessing to our souls as your spirit moves amongst us. Pray that you would draw us closer to yourself. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to start almost with a song. We're going to sing All My Days and about that, how we can be thankful to God for all the days he's given us and will give us. But before that, June's going to read a few verses from Psalm 33, the first five verses. After she's read and we've sung, then I'm handing over to Kat to take us through the all-age part of the service. Uh, and then uh, you'll come back to me. Good morning. Today's reading is Psalm 33, 2-5. to Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of all his unfailing love. Well, thanks very much, Kat. Thank you for uh, leading us there. And uh, now we're going to turn to the book of Habakkuk, which is the passage we're going to be looking at in the sermon just a little bit later. We're going to be reading the first uh, chapter of the book, plus the first verse from the second chapter. And uh, Janet Chambers has had her arms twisted and has volunteered to read that passage for us this morning. After she's read that, we're going to pray, uh, and then we're going to sing again. And then I'll come back to you and bring you the sermon. But I thought it would be good before Janet uh, reads to us this morning that I'll just give you a brief introduction to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk has one B and three Ks. So it's no use remembering the spelling for when you play Scrabble because there's only one K tile in the Scrabble set. So you'll never be able to spell it in Scrabble, so don't bother too much about the spelling. 
I'm intending to study chapter one today, chapter two in two weeks' time, and chapter four, uh, chapter, sorry, chapter three in four weeks' time. Now Habakkuk is named after the prophet who wrote it, and it's really short. It's only three chapters and a total of 56 verses, but it's not the easiest book in the Bible to read. I don't mean you know, the words are difficult, um, or even that the words are difficult to understand. It's more that it's difficult to take in. It's difficult to absorb the message that the book has for us. And I guess that its meaning and implication will probably need us to adjust our thoughts about God and about ourselves, maybe quite a bit. Now, we don't exactly know when these three chapters were written, but the evidence of the text suggests that it was sometime after 650 BC and before 605 BC. It's a time when the Jewish nation of Judah was in a sorry state, both morally and politically. The big power in the region at the time is Assyria, and Judah has managed sort of quasi-independence from them, uh, a kind of satellite state, sometimes more and sometimes less independent, depending on how political winds were blowing at the time. Uh, there's been a long reign of King Manasseh in Judah, which ended in 643 BC, and that really cemented the moral decline of the Jewish nation. We read in 2 Chronicles 33 that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations around. In both courts of the temple, he uh, built altars to the stars and to the uh, idols, and he even put up an idol in God's temple. He uh, sacrificed his children. He practiced divination and witchcraft. He sought omens. He consulted mediums. And although there were improvements from time to time, nevertheless, the general tone of the nation was downhill. And it's in this situation that we come across Habakkuk. And frankly, he's a bewildered prophet. So let's listen now to chapter one and the first verse of chapter two of the book of Habakkuk, as they're read to us by Janet. Right at the start of this book of Habakkuk, we find the prophet with a complaint against God. It seems that Habakkuk is a faithful follower of God. He's concerned about the violence and evil that surrounds him. He's been praying to God about it. You can see that in verse 2. And from what's written, it appears that his prayers aren't occasional prayers, but have been going on for some long time. God isn't listening to his prayers. At least, that's how Habakkuk sees it. I'm crying out to you about this violence, he says, but you don't hear. I still have to look at all this injustice, which is all around me. Habakkuk knows God well enough to know that God doesn't like this violence, doesn't like this injustice. Hence his plaintive question in verse 3. Why do you tolerate it? Why don't you do something about all this injustice? And he continues, there's destruction, there's violence, there's strife, there's conflict. The legal system, he says in verse 4, is paralysed. Habakkuk was a Jew whose legal system was based on God's laws, but it was either being ignored or manipulated for the benefit of those in power. It didn't function. Justice never prevailed. The wicked got the upper hand. Even when good people tried to do good things, those who were evil hemmed them in. 
Well, if you want to look at the nation in which we live, can you see some parallels? Good people trying to do good may get charged with hate crimes because they try and speak out for what's right. We have laws which lean towards a so-called tolerant society where anything seems possible. It grants freedom to take drugs, to drink to excess. It frees almost anyone to have sexual relationships with whomever uh, will have them as often or seldom as they desire. People can drop into and drop out of marriage at will while their children suffer the unfortunate collateral damage. Fetuses are aborted because they are unwanted, even though a gift from God. Many are left isolated, lonely and cut off from love. Many expect government to provide care so they won't have to. Damaged young adults get so-called care in the community, which hardly warrants the description of care, nor is it an act of community. How do our society's standards of justice, care, respect and harmonious relationships compare with God's? How do mine? How do yours? Well, God wants us to be like Habakkuk and to be disgusted about the sins in our culture. We mustn't become accustomed to any of them. Indeed, we need to take great care that the sins of our culture don't spread to us. It's far too easy to become like the world around us. Far too easy to buy into what is, after all, a heathen and idolatrous culture, after all. Are we as concerned about the world around us, about the purity of the church, and about the cleanliness of our own hearts, as Habakkuk was? Perhaps we need to confess to God that we too are part of this problem and that we need to be changed and renewed. Well, Habakkuk certainly was concerned. He was very concerned. He'd been praying hard and often about this injustice, about this discord, this violence, this conflict, this destruction in his nature, in his nation. He was suffering under these and he wanted to be saved from them. But God didn't seem to be doing anything about it. Even though these things were definitely against God's declared purposes for his nation, even though Habakkuk could be sure that God didn't like this type of behaviour, nothing was changing. Well, maybe you're not, you've not been praying about these things. Maybe your concern is about the health of a loved one, or your own health, or the need for work, or peace in your family, or release from bondage to some sin, or, well, I'm sure there's 101 other possibilities and among those watching, many will have some prayer that they've brought to God frequently. You've been praying many, many times that there would be some resolution, that there would be some return to normality, but God doesn't seem to hear. Maybe you've been praying for the salvation of someone very close to you, a husband, a wife, a child, a grandchild, and you've been praying again and again and again, but God doesn't listen. Or so it seems. Actually, sometimes our prayers aren't answered because they're obviously not what God wants. I mean, if you were praying that your next door neighbour's cockerel uh, would be blasted by a thunderbolt so that uh, it wouldn't wake you up so early in the morning, I think you can realise why God might not answer that prayer. But when we pray for peace, 
for health, for salvation. We know that these things are things that God is really interested in. So what are we to make of his apparent inaction? This was the situation that Habakkuk was in. He's been really, really affected by what was around him. It was a burden to him. And he was praying again and again that God would do something about it. Yet God doesn't seem to hear. So finally he asked God, why don't you do something? Now sometimes in scripture, like here, we get an answer. We'll talk about that in a minute. God tells us why. Or if he doesn't tell us why, he tells us what's going to happen. Perhaps you remember Paul praying for his thorn in the flesh, probably poor eyesight, to be dealt with. It's recorded in the first part of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Three times Paul pleaded with the Lord to take it away from him. But God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God did hear, and although not answering in the way Paul had asked, God told Paul that it was God's way of de developing Paul's reliance on God. Well, that was a time when there was an answer. The prayer was told what was going on. But oftentimes, in fact, I guess most frequently, we don't know why God doesn't answer our prayers in the way we ask. We just don't know why God acts in the way he does, nor why he doesn't act in any way that we can detect. Look at Job in uh, the book, Bible book of the same name. He loses all his belongings, and he was a very rich man, so that was a lot. His children were killed in a disaster. He breaks out in a very painful skin disease. His wife deserts him. And to add insult to injury, his three friends pitch up and tell him that he must clearly be a bad person, and this is God giving him his comeuppance. For our benefit, but not for Job's, the Bible opens a window into heaven. And we see God commending Job. And we find out the reasons for all these terrible events. You can read the first few chapters of the book if you want to find out. But poor Job gets no such insight. He asks why, but the only answer he gets from God, and he has to wait a long time for it, is more or less, not your business to know, mate. Like Job, it's a common experience not to get an immediate or direct answer in our laps. Maybe never to know an answer. God never promises to tell us what we'd like to hear, nor to show us what we'd like to see. He promises instead that he will hear and answer all prayers that in, are in line with his will. In 1 John 5 and verse 14 we read, If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Note that this says, we know we have an answer, not we see we have an answer. The answer to a prayer that in line with God's will is an answer to be received by faith, by trusting God. Well, in verses 5 to 11, God does give an answer to Habakkuk's complaint. God answers the question about why violence isn't being dealt with, why conflict and strife are allowed to run rife, why these things, which clearly aren't what God wants, aren't being dealt by God. And if you haven't read this before, then you may find God's answer rather surprising. I'm sure Habakkuk was astounded. 
In fact, that's what God says in verse 5. You're going to be really amazed by the answer. You're going to have difficulty believing my answer because, he says in verses 6 to 11, I'm going to send someone to deal with this problem and they're much worse than the problem that they're coming to sort out. The Babylonians are going to be sent by me and they're ruthless. They haven't got time for their victims. They steal, they kill. <clears throat> They'll come intent on violence, much more violence than the violence they're going to overturn. They're unstoppable. They have no time for any law at all. In effect, God says to Habakkuk that they are the exact opposite of what Habakkuk thought was required. In order to stamp out violence, to stamp out injustice, to reinstate a system of laws that are upheld, God is sending a nation who are going to brush aside the law to a greater extent than it's already been disregarded. He's sending people who are going to act with even more violence and even more injustice than is done at the moment. And what's more, these people don't worship God at all, as you'll see in verse 11. Habakkuk got an answer of sorts from God to his question, why aren't you doing anything? But can you imagine the distress that Habakkuk must have felt with the answer he got? It's the ultimate unpalatable message. It's enough to make prunes with tripe seem like a gourmet meal. Aren't you thankful that God often doesn't tell us how he's going to arrange our lives? One of the messages of Habakkuk chapter 1 is that God is sovereign, so much so that he even uses his enemies to achieve what he wants. They are like chess pieces on his board, each moving and acting according to their own wills, but at the same time going exactly where God purposes. Here is the paradox between God's sovereignty and our wills. God uses the choices that each of us freely makes to accomplish his eternal plans. That's how powerful he is. Judas Iscariot was not seeking to serve the greater good when he betrayed Jesus to death, yet he was. Sinful people are used by God to accomplish his purposes just as much as righteous people are. God is truly sovereign over everything and everyone. Sometimes when we look at the Bible, we think, well, that's great good news. And of course it is good news. But the Bible isn't only a book of good news. It's also very often, I'm afraid, got some really upsetting news. Although made perfect, men and women, each one of us, have turned their backs on God. Some more so, some less so, but to be sure. But it's a rebellion that is the greatest pandemic ever. Everybody is affected. But God's a God of perfection and he won't tolerate even the merest trace of evil. He's going to deal with every last crumb. And here we are in the middle of that. We're part of the problem. So we're not unaffected by God's plan to deal with this world of evil. And God takes a two-pronged attack, attack of this, a two-pronged approach. First, gloriously, he sends Jesus to rescue all those who turn to Christ in repentance and faith, just like John was telling us last week. Such a person is declared totally and completely righteous in God's sight and need never fear God's wrath against his or her sin. Wonderful. It's a declaration made in the high court of heaven which can't be overturned. It's incredible. It's truly marvellous. But it leaves the problem of our hearts to be dealt with. 
So God has a second prong to his attack. God acts to change us away from the practice of sin to rid us of every imperfect, ungodly thought and attitude, to make us not only declared perfect, but actually perfect. And to do that, he performs spiritual surgery on every believer. And like all surgery, that can be painful. Furthermore, like everyone on earth, the Christian is in the middle of the war between God and Satan. The outcome certain, for sure, God will win because he's God. But living in this war zone means that there's a strong possibility of getting grievously hurt before the Christian passes from this life to life eternal. Indeed, God often uses the battles of this war as part of his spiritual surgery on the believer. We should have a close relationship with God that is open like Habakkuk. Christ should be our friend and we should feel free to talk to him about anything. Do you talk to him about your own doubts or feelings? You see, it was okay for Habakkuk to ask God, how long? Why? But like Habakkuk, when we do, we must be prepared for an answer that isn't what we expect or wish for. In fact, the first word of God's command in verse 5 is look. It's only as Habakkuk looks at God's way of answering that Habakkuk begins to change. It's not immediately, and we'll take three sermons to see that change, but it begins by him looking to God and the way God operates. And that must be our method too. Habakkuk does the best thing he can. In verse 12 and the first part of verse 13, he hears God's message and he turns back to the basic truths he knows about God's and his relationship to him. Look at those verses, verse 12 and the first part of verse 13. God is the sovereign Lord. He can't be thwarted. Good will out. God's everlasting. He can't be overcome. God's promise that Habakkuk's nation won't be wiped out. Even though the punishment against his countrymen's sins are going to be carried out by the evil Babylonians, it's a good God who is directing and controlling that. And God is a rock one on whom Habakkuk can rely. So this is the standing point that Habakkuk takes. But these facts about God, about his nature and the way he acts, don't relieve Habakkuk of his puzzlement. Even although they gave him a much firmer place to stand, yet we see in verse 13b, uh, <coughs> this reminder about God's nature only causes him to ask God, why he tolerates all this evil? Why he allows it? Why he doesn't stop it? Why he doesn't intervene? So when you are confused or frustrated about your situation, when you want to know why your prayers aren't apparently heard, when God's answer seems to be worse than the problem you've been praying about, then it is Christ alone who can provide the answer. We must turn again to our Saviour. We must grab hold once more of his nature, his character, his declared promises and purposes. He must be the first and the last person on whom any of us and all of us should turn for an answer. In effect, God says to Habakkuk and to us what he said previously in Isaiah chapter 55 and verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says God. Neither are your ways my ways. 
just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. But they are mine, says God. They are of me. They come from my person and my everlasting, perfect and good plan for you. This may not relieve our bewilderment, certainly didn't relieve Habakkuk's, but it did give him and it will give us a solid spiritual basis on which to build our faith. Well, at the end of all this, what is Habakkuk to do? I very much fear that oftentimes when we've prayed for a long time and there seems to be no resolution, or when we have a why question that never seems to be answered, then we slip into two possible attitudes. We may shrug our shoulders, effectively saying, well, that's just like God. You ask and you pray and you never get an answer. You just have to grin and bear it. That's the Christian life for you. Or we rail against God. We get angry with him when we say, you said you'd hear my prayer. Well, I'm fed up praying. It's useless. You take no notice of me. You've got it in for me. And I'm up to here with your so-called promises. Well, Habakkuk doesn't fall into either of those traps, thankfully. Instead, he, he determines to see how God will resolve things. By the first verse of chapter 2, in effect, he says, I voice my complaint, my difficulties, my uncertainties to you, God. I'm confident that somehow, sometime, you'll sort things out. I understand that it will be to your timetable and in your way, so I'm going to keep a keen lookout to spot you at work. Habakkuk gave himself the task of looking for God's response. He wasn't going to miss it. If God spoke in a still, small voice in an unexpected place at an unexpected time, he was going to have his ears pinned back to hear. How about you and me? You see, God is working on the problem. He is active. It may not seem like it. When something happens, it may seem to be the very opposite of God at work. But nevertheless, the truth is that God is at work. What about your situation? The concern that you have, where there seems to be no movement? Yes, there too, God is working on the problem. God is active. Even though it may seem like the very opposite of God at work, nevertheless, he is. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word. And even though sometimes it doesn't say what we'd like it to say, we pray that our trust in you might be strengthened, our determination to rely on you, even in the worst circumstances, might be strengthened and aided by your Spirit. Help us to recognise that you are a good God, always working good, even when it seems the opposite. Strengthen our faith, we pray. Help us to put our trust daily in you, to keep on praying, sure that you hear us, sure that you answer in a way that is best ultimately for our souls. Grant this, we ask, for Jesus' glorious namesake. Amen. And now we're going to sing our final song. And after that, like last week, there'll be a prayer 
which will come up on the screen, which I invite you to read out loud together. But the song we're going to sing is one perhaps you haven't sung before, Oh Father, You Are Sovereign. Let's uh, sing this as our testimony to God being in control. God bless you till we meet again. Good morning, everybody. Today's reading is from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, up to the first verse of chapter 2. The prophecy that Habakkuk, the prophet, received. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoings? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralysed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. The Lord's answer. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people, they are a law to themselves, and promote their own honour. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. By building earthen ramps they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. <laughs>